This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Welcome to Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That is me, and today I've got a twofer for you. A rangy twofer, if I do say so myself. First, we're checking in on Apple's upcoming headset, which is supposed to debut in June for real this time. We've been hearing about this headset for a long time. We've talked about it on this very podcast uh, for quite some time. I have remained confused about this headset. It sounds like it's very expensive, 3000 bucks, pretty unwieldy, not useful to most people, which is why I've been wondering why Apple is going to unveil this thing at all. And it turns out people at Apple have some of those same questions. We learned about that from Trip Mickle's recent piece in the New York Times, so I had Trip on to talk about all those Trip covers Apple for the Times. One big question I've got, and we talk about this at the end, is whether the fact that people at Apple are bad-mouthing an upcoming product, or at least questioning an upcoming product, says more about that product or more about Apple in 2023. And then we're going to talk with Roger Bennett, the co-founder of the Men in Blazers Soccer Empire. We're going to talk about the men in Blazers soccer empire. I've had Roger on a couple times in the recent past because I adore him and I want him to talk about topics like the World Cup. But I've always been interested in his efforts to turn really a single podcast into an entire business and he's never really wanted to talk about that. But now he's trying to expand that business and he does want to talk about that. So we did. I think you'll enjoy it. First, here's me and Trip Mickle. I'm here with Trip Mickle, covers Apple for the New York Times. Welcome back, Trip. Thanks for having me. Trip was on this show before because he was talking about his excellent book, After Steve, about the fall of Johnny Ive and, and the rise of Tim Cook at Apple. Is that a fair way of describing it? That's a great descriptor. Good. And and now um, you're back because you have interesting news about the new Apple headset, which I think I've been reading about for three or four years at this point. I've had other reporters from other fine publications, Wayne Ma from The Information, Mark Gurman from Bloomberg, to talk about this thing. It sounds like it's coming out in June, you've reported, and there's some other details that are interesting. But by far the most interesting one is the fact that you are reporting that not everyone within Apple thinks the new Apple headset is a good idea. And it's extraordinary to see that kind of reporting about Apple, which is both usually closed off and, and at least in the old days, really lockstep. Like, here's what we're doing. There's no dissension. And I don't think you're quoting anybody by name on the record uh, here, but you've got credible reporting. It says people within Apple aren't sure this headset is a good idea. Why is that? Why is that? Well, there's a variety of reasons, but I, I think um, number one is what is the problem we're trying to solve? I, I think that's a, a question that people have struggled with. Two is what is the price point of this device? And uh, and then beyond that, it's like you know who who's going to be the the user at the price point that we've seen we've seen advertised or at least is being discussed internally, which is about three thousand dollars. Okay, so it's a it's we've heard it's gonna, we've heard in the past it's going to be very expensive, and we can talk more about the price. Remind us what the headset is supposed to do and how it differs and doesn't differ from other 
virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality headsets we've seen in the past from Microsoft, Meta, others? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with where the article began, which is with a concept video that Johnny Ive showed circa 2018 at Apple's Top 100 meeting, which is the, the annual gathering in, at Carmel Valley Ranch where they talk about what products are on the horizon. And Johnny showed a concept video that was really polished that shows a gentleman getting into a taxi cab in London, putting a headset on and calling his wife and saying, you know, would you like to come to London with me? And she joins him and they have an experience, uh, or at least they see the sights of London through his eyes as he's kind of traveling around the city. She, she's also presumably wearing the headset and they're, they're, they're viewing London together through his eyes. Right. And, and this is a, a concept that really is at the forefront of what Apple's trying to bring with its headset, which is a concept called co-presencing. This is slightly different and you know, if you really get technical, it's it's quite different from the metaverse concept that Mark Zuckerberg has has been, you know, uh, evangelizing. Metaverse being like a place that everybody can come to and gather. Co-presencing being a place that kind of is more bespoke. It's where you and your friends and invitees can gather. It's a little bit more like Zoom, or you know, maybe an Instagram feed that you keep carefully curated as opposed to your Facebook feed. Sounds pretty similar. It sounds like more of a label than anything else. A little bit, a little bit of hair splitting there, right? But for people who've been in the AR AR world for a long time, there is a there is a very big difference here. And the way you can think about it is, it's kind of like Apple's augmented reality walled garden versus you know Facebook's social network for everyone. There's just a little bit of the the culture, the identities of the companies are are kind of coming through in the direction that they're trying to take this next wave of technology. But to break it down into eight-man speak for me, these are big goggles you put on over your head, and you can see out of them into the real world if you sort of dial things back and forth. But the idea is you're seeing sort of a virtual reality setting in them most of the time. Correct. And then you you can kind of mix or match your use cases based on what you need, right? So in that instance, the gentleman who has on the on the on the goggles is seeing outside into the into the world, so he has pass through vision. In other instances, you may want to be closed off, whether that's because you're uh, working in CAD or Photoshop inside the goggles, or because you're watching a John Favreau movie that was made specifically for the use case of wearing of wearing these this headset while while you while you watch the dinosaurs roam around whatever universe that John Favreau's invented. And these things seem particularly clunky, especially for Apple that we're used to thinking about sort of sleek design, Johnny Ive in particular, sort of minimalist. Again, these are big goggles that sit over your head. You need some sort of thing that sits on your waist. I think it's a battery pack. Magic Leap and others have done this before. Apparently, it's just too hard to get all the, the, the programming and power you need out of a device that sits on your head for right now. It doesn't seem very Apple-y. Is that part of the issue within Apple, that this does not seem like a kind of device Apple would make? Or is it, or is it more basic than that, and it's more not a device they're not sure anybody else wants to put on their body? The skepticism is less rooted in, is it a device that Apple would make? Um and more in what is it, what's the problem that we're trying to solve with this device, right? Um, you know, if you think back to every other device Apple's had success with, most recently the AirPods, I, you know, that, that moved into a product category and headphones that we all use, but that we had a 
frustration or a friction point with, which is when you pulled earbuds out of your pocket, they were tangled up in a rat's nest. You know, Air, AirPods solved that problem. Um, you know, or they took something that we were using. Problem. Yeah, took something we were using and made it better. Right? That's they didn't make the first phone. We all had many of us had phones by the time the iPhone came out. They added the internet to it um, and and a music player. Apple Watch is kind of a different animal. We can talk about that. It seems like it, throughout the recent history of virtual reality, we've been promised these device and mixed reality and AR, that these things would do lots of things. And in the end, they either become gaming devices, which kind of makes sense. Or Mark Zuckerberg says, no, no, you're going to use these for work. You're going to have meetings with these. Um, and, and the fact that your avatar doesn't have legs, don't worry about that. We'll get to that eventually. What are the pro headset people within Apple say they want to do with this thing? Co-presency. The people who are championing this believe that by having a co-presence experience, we can we can bring people together in a new way in a world that has been, I don't know, undermined by our obsession with devices. So I'm not I'm not really clear. I'm not gonna be the best yeah. advocate for this, but you know, devices that have so disconnection, this is a device that can create a new form of connection for people. And if it's $3,000, right, that's not available to everyone. No, not a lot of people are going to, not that many people are going to be able to afford co-presence. So I'm assuming that there's some sort of indication that, well, these things are going to be for either enthusiasts or industrial use, that you'll wear these because you are having a work meeting with someone and they're on the other side of the world and this is the most rational way to do it or it's better than Zoom. Is that sort of what we're hinting at? Right. Or you're a designer that would, you know, prefer to be able to see an experience in some kind of like, I don't know, that 3D or uh, dimensional way what you're building and these goggles, this headset can make that a reality. So yes, I mean, the use case is primarily as most analysts see it at this point, is still in the B2B world. So when I've talked to your colleagues about this and they've all talked about a price tag around $3,000, I said, well, who's going to buy this? And they basically said, we think that Apple thinks this is sort of a preliminary device that gets gets us on the way to glasses, actual glasses you could wear that could be lightweight and people aren't going to complain about that. The tech isn't available for that yet, so they're coming out with this and it's an introductory step. And if you really want to stretch the analogy, you can think about this as maybe some of the really high-end Mac computers they come out with that really aren't meant for everyone but like high-end designers who really need a lot of computing power. Is that still the thinking at Apple? Yeah, Mark and, and Wayne have both been at the forefront of this. But when you when you look at the unit projections and the amount of ma manufacturing uh, equipment that's been put behind developing this, it really signals to the marketplace this is going to be a limited run. They're not they're not making two hundred million you know headsets in year one. Of course, you you can't do that. Nor are they making the number same number of watches they're going to make, or or even aspired to make in year one of the watch. This is going to be a much more uh, much more limited run, limited marketplace. Their projections right now from most analysts are $450,000. And I think other outlets have reported that Apple's projections are, you know, under a million. Very unappily to come out with a new product that doesn't really have sort of existing reference. I mean, we can say that they're going to, you know, we could, we could argue they're going to do a better version of Meta's headset, but those things aren't really in the market yet for all intents and purposes. And when we say it's unappily for them to do that, we're really saying it's un 
Steve Jobs-like. It strikes me that, and you tell me if this is correct, the watch was sort of the first thing that, that, that Tim Cook sort of brought to market sort of under his watch. And this might be the first Apple product that's just wholly created in the Tim Cook era. Do I have that right? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would say that the watch was really driven by Johnny Ive. You know, this mm-hmm. was this was Johnny and Johnny's vision for what the next product should be in a in kind of the post Steve Jobs period, and he brought that to the fore and was was the one who drove that product from beginning to end, from you know from marketing uh, and and design to release. And this product is one that comes after Johnny has left. It's it's really birthed in a in a period of design limbo and a period of transition where it's being led by an engineer named Mike Rockwell. And you can say reliably that this is much more of a Tim Cook era product than than the watch itself was. Why do you think Tim Cook wants to bring this out in June in a limited run, a high-end thing? He knows it's not going to have mass adoption. Why do you think he thinks it's important? You know, Tim hasn't addressed why he thinks this, this is important beyond saying that, that he believes that there is a future where we will look back on augmented reality and, and question why it didn't exist previously in the same way that today you look at, at the world and think like, how did, how did we get by without the internet? So he feels like this is, this is a, you, you, a, like in the future, this will be a ubiquitous technology that everyone takes for granted. But we, we're years away from ubiquity, right? We're, we need this bridge device to get there. And so you've got to seed the device. You've got to get developers to develop apps and use cases for this device that that then people will begin to gravitate to it for. We spent years in, in tech press and tech observer land and Apple fanboy land saying, what's the next iPhone? What's the next iPhone? And then sort of the succession was, well, there was the iPad and then kind of AirPods and Apple Watch. And we've all sort of realized there is no next iPhone. Does anyone in Apple think this is really the next iPhone? It's just going to come out in a different it's going to be staged differently than the iPhone, where the iPhone sort of came out more or less in its complete form when it first came out. It got much better over time, but it, it kind of was what it was when it came out. Do they think, well, this is going to be the next, this will be as important as the iPhone. We're just not going to see it all at once. There is a general hunger across tech for the next wave of, of computing. You know, we've been in this kind of long tail moment with the smartphone where f- beyond 15 years at this point, and people are eager to see what comes next. And there's a lot of optimism that augmented reality will be that next computing platform, that it will be complementary to uh, our computers and our phones and our TVs and everything else. It will replace some, some things that we use those devices for, and it will become, as Tim Cook said, ubiquitous at one point in time, at some point in time. But we're not there, right? We, we do need a bridge, to your point. So I kicked off this interview by saying it's extraordinary to see reporting coming out of Apple saying that the company is not sold on this, that there are, and I'm assuming you're not talking to just random people within Apple who have some opinion, people who matter. Obviously, you're not going to tell me who you're talking to because you don't identify them in the story. But what do you make of the fact that that people were willing to talk to you, Trip Mickle, New York Times reporter, and say, yeah, I'm, I don't know this is a good idea. I don't remember any kind of reporting like that around any other device in the past coming out of Apple. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that was exactly why we did this story, right? I mean, this is so unorthodox for the company to 
to be on the precipice of re- releasing something, usually they're marching towards that release with with confidence and I mean, no doubt, anxiety, right? Because they want they, they don't know that the world will accept what they're going to release. But in this instance, there are just so many unique uh, aspects of this that differentiate it from other products that they've launched in the past that there's skepticism. And I think that's what's interesting. I mean, if anything, we've all learned you don't second guess Apple. I mean, given the the number of users that they have and the and the power of uh, of the team that they built to develop hardware devices that kind of you know everybody you know winds up buying tons of copies of, but you know we're seeing a different a little bit of doubt here, and that's unusual. How much of that doubt, that public doubt, the anonymous publicly expressed doubt? is about this specific device and and the strategy for it and whether it's a good idea versus it's Apple in 2023. Steve Jobs is still not there. He's been gone for more than a decade. It's a different company. Employees maybe feel more comfortable talking about things they don't like about Apple. Do you think some of it is that? There's a facet of that. There's a facet of um, a, a company that's that's splintered a little bit, right? In terms of the leadership. I mean, Johnny Ives' departure is no small thing. Um, you know, when you lose someone of of his ilk who has, you know, his creative legacy, there's, there's a void that's left. And we've seen other departures from that design team that was so critical to the development of a new product. And that's bound to to, I guess, inform some people's opinions about whether or not they're going to be able to do something as great as they did in the past, because those same soldiers that brought products forward in the past aren't there. Any idea how they're going to show this thing off? I've had this trouble when talking about VR and AR or trying to do it in front of a live audience saying, well, let's, you know, you put on a headset, you look like a dork and no one can see what you're doing anyway. These things are meant for personal viewing. How do you think they'll they'll roll this out both on stage at whatever Apple event they do and then for an interested public? You just have to strap one of these things on your head. Do you imagine, is there some other way to show this off? Well, there's, you, you mentioned that. And then the other element of this that's complicated is they're going to have to figure out lenses for people who wear glasses because, you know, the headset won't, and we have this in our story, the headset won't fit over glasses cleanly. So there's going to be an experiential aspect of this that you'll have to, you know, bring to life in the store too. It's going to be complicated. Um, If you go back and look at the watch as a precedent, they spent a lot of time training staff on how to sell watches based on sizing up people who walk through the door and assessing what the right watch was for that person to buy. Are you a $10,000 watch person or a $400 watch person? It was like watching somebody walk onto a car lot and saying, well, do we steer this guy to the Lexus over here or, you know, to, you know, some other uh, other car that's a little more. This is a Tercel. Right? It's got a Toyota Tercel or the one that, <laughs> that I owned. Yeah. So it's just, yeah, it's just going to be different. So I don't know. There's no doubt in my mind that when Apple does this keynote, it's going to be polished and sophisticated. They've They've continued to do that without Steve Jobs for more than a decade now. And that will certainly be the case. You know, they'll surely have some terminology better than co-presence, I would imagine, when they when they bring this forward and hopefully be able to explain the difference between it and metaverse. So you're not sitting there splitting hairs and wondering what what the difference is between the the vision that Apple has for an augmented reality future and and the one that uh, Meta and Mark Zuckerberg have been advancing. 
Trip, you say this is going to come out in June. We're recording this in late March, so we got less than three months before this thing is out there. So I am very, very curious. I bet we might talk maybe around the time it rolls out. Um, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Trip. In a minute, we're going to talk to Roger Bennett from Men and Blazers, but first, a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline, because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm talking to Roger Bennett, who, as everyone knows, runs the Men in Blazers media empire. You know this because he's been on, this is now his third time in the last two years. Welcome, Roger. It's a joy to be back, Peter. Roger, I have you on all the time because I like you. I like soccer. I like that you've gotten me to like soccer much more. I now listen to you all the time. And I've also had you on a bunch because you're running what appears to be a really interesting and growing, I said small, really interesting media business. And whenever I ask you about it, he said, no, no, I don't want to talk about that. Let's talk about the game. Let's talk about the sport. And then I got a note from you saying, hey, I want to talk about the business. So let's let's talk about men and blazers and how you built and are building this business, Roger Bennett. I'm very happy to. Uh, you know that I'm a great deflector. I'm English, so I'm filled with a deep sense of self-loathing, so I cannot stand talking about anything, which is why I always push it off. But it is a remarkable time for football in the nation. It's also a remarkable time for media platforms, you know, a niche media business with a deep emotional connection. Niche is but, better than small. Niche is good. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's, if you have a niche in America, it's pretty bloody massive. When, uh-huh. you come, when you come from England, you can own all of England and have something that is dwarfed by something that's niche in the United States. And Ask Oasis about that, yeah. <laughs> that's what we set out to do. And I've always focused with Men in Blazers from the very beginning. It was John Green, who is one of our regular guests, the, the novelist and a, an agonized Liverpool fan. He said, like, the focus for the future of any media business is not to worry so much on the breadth of audience that will come, but it's about the depth of connection between you uh, and your audience, that deep, deep emotional connection. If you lean into that, you can build pretty well anything. And that's kind of what we've tried to do, Peter. Roger, you were talking to a guy who hosts a podcast dedicated to the inner workings of the media industry. So yeah, I understand niches and the, the value there, the potential value there. So let's let's catch people up about what Men in Blazers is today and what you're rolling out. It's you and your partner, Michael Davies, uh, are the, the anchors of the network. And then you now are up to how many shows, including the new ones you're rolling out this week? Well, we have 11. But the the big moment for us this week is just the, the, the pace, the growth. I mean, to contextualize it, football, which we've always joked on our show, soccer, America's sport of the future, uh, as it has been uh, since 1972, perpetually tomorrow's sport. But we have a Women's World Cup this summer. 
the US women try to go back to back to back. We have a Copa America, which is the biggest tournament in South America, which for reasons of money is coming to the United States next summer. What does that mean? It means Lionel Messi is going to be touring American cities all summer long, just going to be delirious. Argentina, Brazil playing the United States of America. It's going to be sizable. And then coming out of that, 1,038 days away, as we pod, Peter, the World Cup itself, the Men's World Cup, is coming to the United States, Canada, Mexico too, in 2026. So the future of the sport we cover is very much now in terms of the growth, the audience, the passion, this young audience. You know, our audience is 20 to 30. And for us... You know, we were podcast first. We're now much more than podcast. It's um, you know, digital original. We care about covering the sport in all of its Star Wars cantina of manifestations, continental, domestic, men's, women's, international and club. Just a crazy number of projects. We, we put podcasts and digital uh, verticals against each of them. And we just signed Hercules Gomez, US player, leading uh, Hispanic analyst to do a project that covers the Mexican League and the American one called Vamos. Um, We're working now with Becky Sauerbrun, the captain of the US women's team, to create uh, women's content going into the World Cup. And Fabrizio Romano, who probably will not be known to a large number of your audience, but he's essentially Woj plus Adam Schechter times a multiple I've learned about him through your tweets. He he's the one who he's well, just he's the guy who announces when so and so is getting signed by so and so for a giant pile of money, and he says the deal is done, and then that means it's. it's he doesn't just say the deal. It's a young Milanese guy who. I mean, it was always rumor uh, transfers. It was always tabloid bullshit. But this gentleman, a young Milanese gentleman, has worked out how to become definitive. When he speaks, these transfers are 100% guaranteed. His phrase is, here we go. Um, And he's changed the landscape. He's got 14 million Twitter followers, got a a similar size Instagram. He's he's become a one-man industry. And his we wanted to get into the transfer business, Peter. And so a lot of what we've tried to do is be authentic, to be honest, to be transparent, to be clear, um, rather than try and cobble together a transfer podcast and do it ourselves we wanted to reach out get the best in class and it is like Woj it is like Schechter coming to the Men in Blazers media network and joining us says a lot about the American audience that he would want to come says a lot about where we are as a media platform but it's really a fairly incredible moment for us. Roger this 11 podcasts multiple newsletters live streams on Twitch you do live shows I'm missing anything. Merch. I bought some of your merch last time I was at one of your live shows. You look very handsome. You've never looked more handsome than when you were wearing uh, some of our merch, Peter. The Twitch, we have a co-production with Amazon Wondery on the podcast side of business. We have the Twitch co-production, which has made us like the Manning brothers, the Manning cast in people's minds in their ear. We watched the England-USA game with Matthew McConaughey for the whole World Cup game, that is the side of the business that's really exploding. So there's a lot of stuff. I've got a press release from you listing all of it. It doesn't list any investors. Is this still all self-funded by by you and Michael? It's self-funded by the partnerships, the Wondery partnership, the Twitch partnership, and every single dollar that we make, we put back into the business to grow it. So that's the stage we're at. And just the growth. I mean, we had 
year on year, the podcast episode 137 in 2021. We're on course for 365 in uh, 2023. We're going to double it next year. The social impressions, we're doing 140 million uh, a month uh, currently across platforms. So all of the all of the profits that we're making, we're pouring to our growth. And that funding question is obviously phase three. Okay, so you might take on some money at some point. Remind me, the, the, the Men in Blazers origin story goes back to what year? Uh, 2010. Uh, was what I just heard there was a there was a moment, Peter. Uh, two thousand six. Uh, I was watching the World Cup. England were playing ESPN, who worked out ultimately how to do football so bloody well. But two thousand six, it was still just a circus Explaining that came into town. Yep. Yeah, they had a commentator who goes, "This was the moment. This was like this was like the apple falling off the tree and hitting me on the head." The commentator goes, "The world's most famous footballer, Charlie Beckham, takes the field," and I was like, "Oh my god!" I was like, "Can you just imagine? I want this sport that I love." In the land that I love, the United States, to become part. If you only had people talking about it who knew what the bloody most famous player in the world's name really was. And that was the moment I was like, we need to lean in. We need to give it our all. And so everything's kind of come from that. But you were a freelance journalist making soccer documentaries, stuff like that. Michael Davies was and is a television producer. You guys started doing these podcasts and and live appearances for ESPN. At what point did you say, oh, this could be a full-time job for me, and maybe this could even be a business? When did that manifest? So 2006 really was when I realized that there there was a yearning. You know, I'd come in 94 to America the World Cup was in that year. It's meant to put the soccer over the top. The sport of the future is meant to be now. It, it wasn't a yo-yo. It wasn't a pogo stick. It didn't take an overnight grip on the nation. But I saw the audience growing slow and steadily. World Cup to World Cup. So 2006, I reached out to ESPN and they brought me on to write a history of football for them, which was actually not not the greatest book that has ever uh, come off the printing presses, but it got us moving. And then Dave and I started podcasting. The other part of the story, we're not a podcast company. We really are a media company, like you know, Twitter, Instagram, uh, by sea, by land, by air, bringing football, men's and women's, all of it to our audience who have gone. The American audience has gone from you know being sucker averse. You know, American sports to mm, soccer curious to suddenly, oh my God, I've got a Tottenham Hotspur tattoo on my forearm. I don't even know how I fell so madly and deeply in love with this sport, but I now can't get enough. And that's been the arc. And we lent into that. But the other part of the story that's propelled our growth is, you know, we'd started podcasting right at the moment podcasting began, which is essentially the growth of football and just the growth of podcasts. When we began to podcast, we developed a deep connection. We were a cult hit to begin with, but a deep connection, pulling together this audience that had, you know, had always existed, but had been yearning to talk, to laugh, you know, watching these games in their pajama. If it it looked- also syncs up with the iPhone, right? That podcast Correct. or the iPhone, that's 2007, 2008, really 2010 is where it really gets going. And that's when people could walk around with a podcast in their pocket. And 2014, we went uh, over to cover the World Cup for uh, ESPN and they threw us into a tiny room, the panic room, a fixed camera where we talked about every single game deliriously in a closet with no windows and it also synced with the rise of digital content before the world cup we could not work out for the life of us how to make cheap 
digital content. We had to have camera teams. We had to edit it. Everything um, was was as far from cost effective as possible. The fixed camera, talking to it uh, close up, learning that allowed us to essentially be always on. Football's always on. And so it wasn't just the rise of the iPhone, it was the rise of podcasts and then the ability with a fixed camera. And now, you know, Riverside, being able to talk to yep. Pep, Pep Guardiola, the Manchester... Last week, we, we interviewed Pep Guardiola, the Manchester City manager, who wants to speak to the American audience. Marcus Rashford, the England star, wants to speak to the Janine Becky, who's leading a Canadian women's team in their fight for equality, and JJ Watt who has become so fascinated by football, he wants to buy a you're all one team. internet connection away and you can do it from your home. I can do it cheaply. We can do it personally. We can do it deeply. Uh, you know, the digital, we can do it podcast, digital, every platform. And I can be outside picking up my dog's turd within five minutes of speaking but to Pep Guardiola. When it's magnificent. This, when did this become big enough or when did you think it was going to become big enough that you said, I am scrapping everything else. This is what I'm doing as my full-time job so 2010 the podcast yeah. at the beginning it just felt like that deep emotional connection between us and our audience i'd say we gigged for four it was like being a band that gigged small rooms for four years building up that deep deep connection and it is our audience are super smart they're super connected they're connected to each other as much to us 2014 the world cup uh, with ESPN really allowed us to uh, get the television show with NBC start to talk about Artura the Premier League on a weekly basis which has been incredible uh, you know with what NBC have done with that engaging the audience with Rebecca Lowe is magnificent after that really it was around the time of uh, Covid where we went daily it's funny a sport stopped and that was when we went daily mm -hmm. you know our audience were where essentially, to me, sports is most interesting when it transcends sports, Peter. And this has been part, I think, of our success has been the storytelling aspect, the human storytelling. And so in COVID, sports stopped, but our audience still wanted to come together. And we, you know, I've always been fascinated by in dark times i think it's when you understand the true nature of human beings and we wanted to step into that that void bring our audience together we went daily daily newsletter daily podcast um, and we've never stopped and that was really when the when the network went from uh, a couple of podcasts a week and a television show to becoming a daily stream of content on every platform and the brands funny enough peter the brands you know the nba one of our big brands is Budweiser. So we mm -hmm. work with Budweiser, with Coca-Cola, with Volkswagen, with Camarena Tequila, with Jägermeister, with DoorDash. And the brands said to us that, you know, they're bigger deals with the sports leagues. COVID freaked them out because they realized sports was not the given that they thought it was. And to be able to affordably, reliably, uh, even when sports stopped, deliver, that really allowed the business to take that next jump up. How many folks work for you, with you? Right now, I mean, we're still small. We are, uh, it was, <laughs> before COVID, it was four human beings uh, doing everything. And now we're at 21. You're paying them full time. That's that, Those, the, that's just a full, so full, that's full, you're asking about full time, yeah. it'd be 21. Um, yeah. And we have, a, obviously, editors and freelancers and who I'd love to come on full time as soon as I can bring them on. And I keep referencing your partner, Michael Davies. He makes television for a living. He brought Who Wants to Be a Millionaire to the U.S. He's now running Jeopardy. That is a full-time plus job. 
How do you guys divide up the labor? There's, I hear a lot of Raj, some Michael. Um, what about behind the scenes? Does he have time to, so we, to help you run a company? We have, I mean, we have a COO uh, who is you know, the commercial. That, his best friends are spreadsheets, um, which has really changed the way we're able to operate and report and engage and, and support. And you know, a lot of it is um, we have an audience that's incredibly um, engaged. So a lot of it's customer and fan we call them GFOPs, great friends of the pod, just communicating, being in their life at key moments. You know, John Green, again, said, uh, as you grow, you will break if you stop engaging your audience in that deep way. So a lot of it is the letters we write, the moments that we're in our, uh, our listeners' lives. So that's where a huge amount of the staff are just supporting, nourishing, responding and engaging but the team it's a content team um is the vast majority of it who are all really now working not just with us but with fabrizio with her with becky and more why do you guys exist as an independent media company shouldn't you be part of espn or fox or uh nbc comcast you were working with nbc Comcast. you still put your still show work. on there adore them adore them why hasn't one of them at some point said, oh, well, it's better for us to own all of soccer or this growing business and let's buy you guys. Let's, let's employ all of you full time. And, and, and that, that makes much more sense than Roger broadcasting from his house. Well, Peter, number one, I grew up listening to indie record labels and I do love the notion of an indie record label. Uh, I love the flexibility. I love the, the fact that we can retain our tone. Uh, I love the fact that we can um engage our audience i mean ultimately we're here to serve our audience the growth of this sport in the nation that i love is just the most thrilling um story of my lifetime and to be able to serve it and to support it and engage it that's my joy i want to engage my audience and if i wanted to get into baseball in 1994 there was a massive pyramid uh, you know, Peter Gammons at the top. If I wanted to get into uh, the NFL, as like, you know, an enormous pyramid, like the Seattle intelligence here, somewhere in the middle. In football, there was very, very little. And right, so, so you were lucky enough to find a lane that was not full of people. And then the other aspect is also, which is fascinating about football, soccer in America, is that it's so balkanized and you have every streamer. What do streamers need? They need niche interests that are have a deeply committed audience so they've all realized football soccer is an incredible catnip in that the audience is young is hungry wants to watch the champions league so cbs paramount picked that up and the nwsl espn have got la liga the spanish league they got the german league nbc are the premier league the premier league business fox have the world cup now you've got hbo turner coming in and buying the u.s men's and women's rights so everything's balkanized so there um, wouldn't. What, I'm, so I'm translating for you. There wouldn't be a natural place for you to be the soccer company within one of these things because you're going to broadcast about stuff that's not on their airwaves. Well, it's not just that it's not natural. I I see a a role in being like Switzerland. Um, like everything's balkanized. I want to support everybody. I love all of it. The men's, the women's. When the US are playing, I love it. When you know Liverpool or Manchester United or Manchester City are playing, I love it. I want to support all of it. And so, to me, like our lane is to be Switzerland with slightly less yodeling, um, illegally uh, constituted money, um, and and chocolate. And, 
Yeah, I'll get in there. I'll get in there. So that your Toblerone is not overrated. If Toblerone are interested, I'd love to do a Swiss <laughs> football podcast with you. Um, but that's it. To be Switzerland and to be able to be a a centre um, that that respects everybody, works with everybody, is passionate about everybody. That's that's our lane, Peter. Roger. I've asked you over and over to come talk about the business. You did it. You only deflected a little bit. I'm very grateful for your time. When did I deflect, Peter? When you asked me about my own personal happiness? Yeah. Yeah. And your, your kids and your dogs. And <laughs> your partnership. I have no complaints. Uh, I'm delighted to talk to you. Thanks again. Thanks for having us on. Courage. Thanks again to Roger. What a cool job I have. I always say it, but I really do have a cool job. Thanks again to Jelani, who produced and edited this show. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing it to you for free. And thanks to you guys for listening. We'll see you next week. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.